You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast. Observing your registrar. Refine your skills. Our guest is Dr. Andy Morgan. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this recording is taking place and pay respect to their elders, past, present and their families. My name is Margot Field and I'm really pleased to welcome you and I'd like to introduce Dr. Andy Morgan. For those of you who don't know Andy, he's a medical educator with EVGPT and he's also a senior lecturer in the Department of General Practice at Monash University. He worked as a full-time GP in London for 25 years before coming to Australia in 2009 and he's been working in clinical practice in Melbourne ever since and he's now working a bit part-time and doing some medical education. Andy is passionate about the importance of good quality GP training and the role that GP supervisors have in providing this. He has a particular interest in consultation skills and feels that learning how to consult in a patient-centred way is probably the single most important skill that GP registrars need to acquire during their training. In 2009, he created a Master's in Clinical Education thesis, researching on how GPs learn to share decision-making with their patients. So welcome and thank you, Andy, for giving us your time tonight. Thanks, Margot. Thank you very, very much. And it's a complete honour and privilege to be invited by GPSA to run one of their Zoom webinars this evening. And so what we're going to do is cover sort of observing a registrar and try and refine those skills that we've all got anyway, but just maybe add one or two extras. Apropos of seeing Aboriginal clients, I've only done very little of that specific kind of work. I did a brief locum in Kununurra, and I do realise that these consultation models which I refer to mainly came originally from UK and Canada. However, the patient-centeredness, the valuing of sociocultural parts of people's lives and their patients' values and their preferences are even more important when we see Aboriginal clients. So I think it's terribly, terribly relevant. So the structure of this is we're going to just cover briefly why it's worth doing, why it's worth observing our registrars, talk about the different ways of observing the registrars, some nuts and bolts about how to do it, I'll introduce a consultation observation tool, which is based on different consultation models, and also run through some common consulting errors that we tend to see with our registrars. So starting with the question, why? Now, I know I'm a bit of sort of maybe extreme, but I personally believe that teaching the registrars how to sort of consult in a patient-centered way is our core skill. It's, in a sense, the holy grail of general practice. And they come to us having spent quite a bit of time in hospital practice, and it doesn't come naturally to a lot of them. And I think they know a lot about diabetes. They may not know how to apply their knowledge, and we help them with that. But actually, their consulting style is, I think, the single most important thing that we can help them develop in the year or two that they're, they're, they're with us. And they're going to be doing, throughout a lifetime, about 200,000 consults if they work full-time. And it is worth just spending a little bit of time in their first year or two as a GP 
refining their consulting style and, and getting them to see as many other, not just their supervisor, how the supervisor does it, but all those other doctors in the practice who are maybe even more experienced sometimes, how they consult. I think we're, we're missing a big trick if we don't try and encourage our registrars to see as many people as possible within the practice and observe different consulting styles. Now, typically, when I run this session face-to-face with a group of maybe 30, 40 supervisors, I ask the question, how often are you doing it? How often are you observing your registrars? And typically, most supervisors will be doing it early on and just to see that their patients are going to be safe in the hands of the registrar. So patient safety is paramount, and you want to just check out the registrar early on. However, it's less common that this keeps happening as the training progresses as they go through over the next six to 12 months. But initially, patient safety is paramount. But then it's amazing how if you just do case-based discussions, it sounds as if the registrar is probably doing all right. But once you get in there, you realize sometimes there are problems with communication skills, with consulting skills. And if you leave it up to the registrar, whether you sit in or not, if you say, would you like me to sit in with you next week? They'll probably say, no, I'm all right, thanks. And I personally believe that there should be an expectation within a training practice that this is how we do it. Every few weeks, every month, I will be sitting in with you. And also, I'd like you to sit in with me. And I'd I'd like to sort of propose that. And I propose it that this is done in teaching time. Now, just to get some input now, the first question is, have you had experience of directly observing a registrar's? And I imagine the vast majority have, but maybe you could just answer that for us. The next question is, do you regularly, once a month, observe your registrar's consultations? Now, that's distinguishing from observing a registrar's in the first week or two. But do you, on a regular basis, as if they're with you for 12 months, do it at least once a month? The next one is, do you encourage the registrar's to observe you, what Simon Morgan calls reverse consultation or reverse observation? And finally, I'd be very interested to know whether your registrars are still doing any video analysis of their consultations. So we've got the vast majority, and I'd expect that, of people who've tuned into this webinar are directly observing. They've got experience. Interestingly, about 40%, which is much, much higher than typically when I run a face-to-face conversation, 40%. And I think that's exemplary. I'm really impressed that so many of you are actually doing it on such a regular basis. And then the next two questions, encouraging the registrars to observe you. And again, this isn't just in the first week or two which is very commonly done. But it's incredible that 65% of you are encouraging registrars to observe you as they progress. And finally, video analysis. So we will talk briefly about video analysis, but it looks like much fewer people are doing video analysis. So thanks for doing that, Paul. So let's move on. The learning objectives, we're just going to discuss the benefits and introduce a framework. Because I think if you are observing consultations, it's really useful to have a framework. We're going to run through the commonest consulting areas and also talk briefly about providing feedback, having observed a consultation. Now, the punchline. I'm going to give you the punchline of the whole presentation now, just in case you have to go off and go to the pub or whatever it is. 
The punchline is, if you're not doing it already, and I'm very impressed by the numbers who are, is I think I'd strongly encourage you to use teaching time to observe your registrars on a regular basis while they're with you. The second take-home point is to encourage them to observe you, not just at the beginning of their training, but as they progressed. At the beginning, they're sort of almost out of control, just trying to cope with the mechanics of general practice consulting. They're not in a position whereby they can sort of really pick up on those higher level skills. How are you coping with uncertainty? How are you um, sharing decision-making? They're not in the right frame of mind to be aware of those really subtle skills that you're demonstrating until later when they've begun to understand the intricacies and the nuances of general practice. So those are my two main take-home points. Now, COVID has radically changed our lives, but it has particularly radically changed the way we observe consultations, but also the types of consultations. So we ought to probably be observing their telephone consultations as well as their face-to-face consultations. And the other way in which it's changed things is that the different ways in which we can observe are either sitting in the room, video analysis, and we'll come back to video analysis in a moment, And then what's really come to the fore is using this kind of Zoom technology. And we're doing it a lot with ECTVs, but I'm aware of some supervisors using Zoom technology as a way of observing what their registrars are doing without necessarily being in the room. And that's a good option available. Just briefly about videoing. Personally, I think video analysis is incredibly powerful learning method. And I'm very regretful. When I arrived in Australia 10 years ago, I was shocked by how, in Victoria, how little videoing we were doing, and we mandated it. And so between about 2010 and 2015, all the registrars were forced to do some videoing, and the supervisors would give them feedback, and it was a terribly good system. It was well established, and it was highly regarded, and it was thought to be educational and very beneficial. Unfortunately, one of our registrars was a GP registrar, but he also was a medical legal advisor for Avant. And he wasn't happy with the dictate, which was that at the end of their staying with the practice, the video should be deleted. And he felt they shouldn't. They constituted part of the medical health record. So we had to go to the Health Service Commissioner. And unfortunately, he's right. So in Victoria, the 2001 Health Records Act does dictate that all the videos form part of the patient record and need to be kept for at least seven years for an adult after the last time they consulted. And that's meant in Victoria that very little videoing is going on now. And I think that's a very sad chain of events. I'm pleased that in some other states it is still happening because the reason I I think it's so valuable is it encourages self-reflection because if you sit with a registrar and say, I did notice in the first minute or two of the consult you were looking at the computer and it may have affected the rapport you could have built up early on, they could just say, no, I don't think that was really. I thought that was okay. But if you show them a video, there's no argument. And when you go through videos with registrars, you can stop them at certain times and say, what do you think was going on then? And the other benefit is picking up a nonverbal communication. Also mannerisms. I was acutely aware when I videoed myself that I moved my hands a lot. And I ended up, whenever I videoed myself, having to sit on my hands. So you do pick up some mannerisms that you're really not aware of. 
Just a few comments in the chat room about laws in New South Wales regarding videos, and I'm not aware of the situation. I know in Western Australia, when I went there a few years back, they were still definitely videoing. And I, I thought, I hoped it was just the Victorian Health Records Act of 2001 that stopped it happening. But maybe it's a more widespread problem than I'm familiar with. Simon Morgan may have more information on that. Nuts and bolts. We'll race through nuts and bolts fairly quickly. The patients ought to be prepared. They ought to be consented. And, but in my experience, if they're properly prepared and it's explained to the patients why there's another observer sitting in, giving the, the, you know, the, the registrar some support, some professional development advice, they very, very rarely object. And if you do get patients saying, no, there's something wrong with how they're being primed, basically. And often they like it. It's actually a positive. They think they're getting two for the price of one that day. So I'd be very surprised. Just occasionally someone might object, but that would be very rare. It's worth being explicit where if you've got an agenda and asking the registrar if they've got an agenda, if they would like any specific help and if they want to focus on anything particularly, usually, to be honest, they say, no, I just like your tips about how I can get better. But sometimes they say time management is an issue or I'm having trouble limiting people to just one or two problems or whatever it is. And if you've got an agenda, if you think there might be a time management issue, it's worth just voicing that, being upfront if anyone's got an agenda. It's actually quite a skill to sit in the room and not really participate if that's your intention. Sometimes doing three-way consults is incredibly educationally beneficial. But usually that's not the prime intent when you're sitting in with your registrar. And it's important, especially if the patient knows you, you can divert the consultation and they keep looking for you. So it's important to avert your eyes, look down and just try and be very deadpan. One of the pre-webinar questions from someone is, where's the best place to put my chair? Now, there is a bit of research on this. Now, geographically, there's usually only, to be honest, one of two places. You can either be like a fly on the wall, way out of sight, either way behind the doctor or way behind the patient. Or the other common position is to sort of be in a more triangulated position. Now, my personal preference is the more triangulated because I quite like to see side on the facial expressions and the cues from the patient and the doctor. But there is one more thing to mention, which is registrar agency. And I always, always ask the registrar where they would prefer me to sit, because if they are more comfortable with me sitting right behind them and out of eye shot, I would respect that. Usually, having said that, they say, no, I don't really mind, Andy, you know, sit where you like. And I say, well, are you happy with me to sit here? No worries. So I think registrar agency does trump our personal preference. So I think it's worth taking a few notes, writing down verbatim comments, just so that you can feed those back later. I once came unstuck with this at the end of a consultation. I thanked this elderly chap for letting me sit in. And he just looked at me and says, oh, no worries. Everyone has to learn. Now, this is a little bit contentious. I personally think that this is very, very sacrosanct time. You may not have very long between each consult to give the feedback, to have the discussion. It's nice to add in a little bit of extra time. So if the registrar is typically doing 15-minute appointments, I think it's worth, if possible, to extend that an extra five just to allow you to give feedback. 
And I think this is such valuable time. The focus should be on the consultation skills rather than any knowledge issues that come up. I mean, obviously, if it's a skin problem, there's no better way to teach dermatology than to actually teach on the patient. Fair enough. However, if the registrar has seen a child with asthma and you felt that they probably should have started the child on and held corticosteroids or something like that, I think that five minutes is not worth dedicating to the management of childhood asthma. What's worth doing is noting it and saying, why don't we have a tutorial next week on childhood asthma? Because there were one or two things I think you might have done differently. Use this precious, precious time to focus on the consultation skills. Then at the end of the consult, I usually encourage registrars, write up your notes as you would normally do. And I, I quietly just wait. And they finish their records. And then I say, do you mind if I quickly see what you've written? And I don't actually usually read very much of what they've written. It's usually quite long and extensive. But what I do want to see is I go straight to the synthesis. And it's amazing how common there isn't a working synthesis that's brought it all together. And I'll allude to this later because I think that's quite a common error of consulting. We'll move on to consultation models. I'm not going to go through them. I'm just going to highlight there is a big difference. Having worked in the UK for 25 years and then working here for 10 years, certainly with regards to registrar training, in the UK, they are absolutely obsessed with consultation models. And here we are not. And I don't know why that is, why there's such a discrepancy. I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other. But a typical registrar training program would have at least one of their early weekends with their equivalent of the RTOs would be all about consultation models. They'd learn all about Roger Neighbour in 1987, I think, Pendleton, Stoughton Davis, Cambridge Calgary. They'd be very, very familiar with all these different consultation models. And here it's not so big. And I think the reason I mention it is that I obviously went through a UK training and then I was practiced. And then what came out in 1998 was the Cambridge Calgary Consulting Model, which kind of brought everything together. And I read their book and I was absolutely gobsmacked. And having worked already for 10, 15 years, it all made huge amounts of sense. What I've been doing, I hadn't really necessarily understood what I was trying to do. And now this provided a really good structure to help with video analysis of consultations and to help my own and my colleagues' consulting styles. So if you are not familiar with this book, it is a fantastic read. I cannot recommend it more highly. It radically changed my whole way of thinking about consulting. Now, our own college, obviously, is in the process of changing the remote clinical examination and introducing a clinical competency framework. There's a lot of information behind each of those. What I would say is all the work from the consultation models is in these clinical competencies, obviously. But if you sit and observe your registrars, you're covering most of these competencies, maybe not to such a big degree, six, seven and eight, but all the others. The best way of helping our registrars develop their competencies is by helping them actually see how they're doing their consults the Royal College of GPs in the UK, they produced a consultation observation tool and they list 13 performance criteria. And I'll just go through them very, very quickly and encouraging patients' contributions, responding to cues, psychosocial context, ideas, concerns, and expectations, ruling out significant problems, 
appropriate examination, a synthesis, explaining it in appropriate language, a management plan, shared decision-making, confirming the patient's understanding and effective use of resources. Finally, with conditions for safety netting and follow-up. Now, these are the performance criteria that the registrars in the UK had to try and tick the box when they submitted their videos for analysis. And having looked at more than 2,000 registrar submissions, um, Roger Neighbour and Peter Tate found that there were four of these performance criteria that the registrars tend not to do naturally. So they did a paper where they looked at 2,000 registrars and they could see that the registrars were not naturally checking the psychosocial context of the presentation, were not listing ideas, concerns, and expectations. They were not doing shared decision-making. They were not checking understanding. And those are actually the four most patient-centered criteria. And so that's what the registrars, these are originally working in hospitals, they tend not to do naturally. Now, the registrars didn't particularly like this, because, and in fact, they had a point, because these are very good criteria. There's nothing wrong with these criteria. You can't knock them. However, you can't easily do all of them in every consultation. Now, that list of performance criteria is just a UK one. The Cambridge Calgary had their own observation guide. The thing is, that has 17 different criteria. Margot has not paid me to say this. The GPSA has the most wonderful educational resources. And apropos of consulting skills, there's a communication skills toolbox. And under that, in one of the modules, is the structure of the consult. It has a wealth of useful information that you can use with your registrars to practice particular skills that they may not be finding easy, like agenda setting. And they've got their own assessment guide, which is a kind of modification, I think, of the Cambridge Calgary guide. It's a more refinement of that. So there are these other different observation tools. I'm just familiar with this 13 criteria. But as I would emphasize, don't expect all criteria to be satisfied in every consultation. If it does, you get very formulaic consulting. Now, we're moving on to the common consulting areas that we tend to see. Even Tiger and Roger need a coach. And we all get into bad habits. And I even think that well-established GPs, supervisors should occasionally probably have colleagues sit in and offer them advice about how they may be, may, may be doing things in a slightly unusual way. But I would emphasize that if you are encouraging your registrars to sit in with you, try and produce some kind of focus. Christine Longman has researched this, and it's much more productive if you actually give them something to focus on, like how to set agendas, time management, so they're thinking, and also try and encourage them to give you feedback. That also really makes them sit up and concentrate. Now, we're going to run through these fairly quickly. The golden 60 seconds, as we all know, the mean time at which the doctor interrupts that opening statement is usually about 18 seconds. And it, there's a huge amount of evidence now that Cambridge Calgary document that the opening 60 seconds really is crucial in defining how the consult progresses. And if you look back at aberrant consultations where things have gone badly wrong, you can often see warning signs in the first 60 seconds. So not interrupting that opening statement. And most opening statements would end after about 45 seconds. If they go on for more than a minute or two, 
you know, then it may be worth interrupting because it's pathological if a patient just talks and talks and talks for more than a couple of minutes. Intrusive use of the computer. There I am sitting there and there's the patient really thinking that they don't matter. So they talk about the third person in the room and our registrars are now such good typists that they, they think they can sort of look at the patient and touch type at the same time, but they get a kind of automaton-like stare on their face. And it is not a good look. It's very, very difficult to create good rapport if they're actually typing. So I encourage them very strongly, yep, you can type a little bit later, but maybe please not in that first minute or two, because you need to spend that looking at the patient eye to eye, really engaging with them, offering sympathy, even with a look, if appropriate. And when it comes to sharing results, sharing the computer with them, not just you monopolizing it, turning the screen their way, using the computer in a helpful way. Now, problems with rapport, what I mean by this is just those social bit of banter that uh, established GPs, experienced GPs talk about the, the, the patient's suntan, whether it be on holiday, things like that, that just moves the whole running of the concert. And a lot of registrars say they don't feel they should or could ask about social things like that. And in a sense, we need to empower them just to give them a license and tell them why it's so valuable. And Peter Tate's got a great quote, which is, do I know significantly more about this person as a human being than before they came through the door? And if the answer to that is yes, if you know their family, what jobs they do, where they've been on holiday, what, what hobbies they enjoy, things like that, then if you do know significantly more about the patient, you've probably been quite patient-centered. Not screening for other problems. Now, this is a common one, and they get caught out time and time again because they don't realize as registrars that the, the patient doesn't present the most important problem they've got first. That first problem is often not terribly important. And so screening for other problems early may help prevent the, uh, the, the presentation later, the door handle presentation of something quite serious like a breast lump or chest pain. And there's good evidence that asking the question, is there something else rather than is there anything else, is a better way, is a more discerning way of getting the, that most important thing out early. Having assessed that there, there are maybe two, three, maybe four problems that the patient would like to deal with, managing that agenda, trying to limit how many you try to cover in one 10 to 15 minute slot is a key skill. The registrars on the whole are too nice to the patients. They have difficulty with the patients who've taken a day off work just to come to the GP and they've stored up the four or five problems and they'd like them all dealt with today, please. And to empower the registrars to actually resist that a little bit and develop the ways of handling it. A very closed questioning style is a common error. And I see this, so I teach at Monash, where if the, the role player has a pain, the Monash students have an acronym. I forget what it is, but it's got about 10 questions and they go ratatat uh, with their questions and not realizing some of the registrars obviously get it and they realize the value of using open questions and tell me more and anything else that you notice is much more time-saving. But some of them have this residual university undergraduate approach to taking a history. And there's this wonderful concept of building a history, a more collaborative way of building the history with the patient rather than taking the history and, and extracting it. Now, this is one of the big four. 
I'm sure most of the undergraduate curriculum now does include this part of taking the history. The trouble is that it's actually quite a difficult thing to elicit in a slick way. And if you just ask, what are your ideas, concerns and expectations, as in that video, it's very, very clunky. And the registrars worry it's going to be turned around and sent back in their face. You're the doctor. That's why I've come to see you. And so it's all about helping them develop ways of eliciting this information in a, in a way that seems supportive and by maybe prefacing it with something, I've got some good ideas what's causing your headaches, but I'd be really interested to know what you yourself had been thinking might be going on here or if you had any particular worries. And that's just a different way of eliciting it. But it's one of the big four criteria that on the whole, the registrars don't do naturally when they join us in the training program. And this is number two of the big four. They tend not to go psychosocial. They treat more psychological problems as what's left in the wine glass when you've drunk most of it. In other words, just the dregs. When they've ruled out anything serious causing the chest pain, uh, all you're left with is, well, maybe it's anxiety or stress. Rather than having a much more proactive way of diagnosing a psychological problem and diagnosing anxiety, and I, I've seen this many, many, many times in ECTV. There was a typical case where a young man had some vague chest pains, but he kept on talking about his stress, his stress at work, his stress at home. And it was clearly, to my mind, very much an anxiety related, but we had all the ECGs, chest x-rays, and I asked the registrar later, what do you think was going on? And he said, well, I think he's very stressed, but that's not what he told the patient. What he told the patient is, we need to sort out your chest pain and get you back for all the results next week. And so it's a real skill to have that confidence to actually go with your gut feeling and think that something has either a purely psychosocial or at least a, a, a psychosocial issues compounding a physical symptom. Missing cues. Again, I've seen this done. Uh, I was sitting with a registrar not that long ago where the middle-aged woman in her 50s with knee pain, but she mentioned two or three times that her husband had died last year. And she looked to me sad. And I just felt it in my bones that if the registrar had just asked how she coping, that's very sad that her husband had died. And what, what, why had he died, maybe? I felt that she would have just burst into tears. But instead of that, we got the knee x-ray and the bloods and et cetera, et cetera. And I just felt that that was just, a, in a sense, that wasn't the main issue for that woman that day. Now, this is an important one, examination issues. I work for EVGPT. We've noticed a radical change in the examination skills of our registrars over the last three to four years. In other words, they're just not doing proper examination. So a chest examination might be quick listen through your shirt at both bases. You think, oh, I don't think that's a proper GP examination of the chest. And they're good registrars. They're otherwise doing quite well. And so it's become a bit of a thing. And I'd be interested to know whether it's more widespread or whether it's just in Victoria. And I've talked to the registrars, why is that? Why, you know, are you doing that kind of examination in hospital? And they say, yes. And they're saying that that's the same examination that their consultant does partly in ED for privacy reasons, not exposing chests and things like that. But I think what they're missing is the fact that probably these patients may end up with a chest x-ray in a way, which may be why they're not bothering 
And I know there's some COVID issues that have come into the equation as well now. But if, if we're just talking pre-COVID, we're noticing that they're not doing proper chest examinations. The other issues that you can only really glean by sitting in and observing is that they may not actually be able to use an ophthalmoscope properly to see a disc. And the other thing we notice is that their examinations are not focused. You know, someone comes in with a bit of vertigo and they're doing all the cranial nerves, but that takes forever and they're not focusing their examinations. So this is a really important one, I think, that when you're sitting in and you're observing, that you can actually see what's actually going on. What are their examination skills? Now, I mentioned this earlier, which is when I look at their notes, really what I want to see, apart from that they're not too long, and I never knock those. I think that's something you learn as you get more experience to refine your note-taking. And they, on the whole, are really trying to write exemplary notes. But sometimes what's missing is the synthesis. So they've written a lot, but they haven't brought it together and put themselves on the line and written a differential diagnosis with their working diagnosis to the fore. And I think that's a discipline they, we need to help them with and teach them with. A poor structure to the consultation. You see many different problems arise here. Sometimes the registrar moves onto the second problem before they've really dealt with the first problem. They have to come back to the first problem. Sometimes if they're not sure what's going on, they, they cycle, they sort of take a history examination. They're not sure. They take another history, another examination, they go around in circles. So they've got problems with the structure. Cambridge Calgary, they talk a lot about the two halves of the consultation. The first half being the history and examination. The second half is when the patient gets stressed, sits down, and you say, right, what's going on and what are we going to do about it? And typically in a 10-minute consult, it's, it's quite common that uh, the split might be 8-2. In other words, very little time left for the explanation, for the decision-making, for the management, checking understanding, safety netting and follow-up. And they argue that we should try and make those a little bit more even. It's very difficult to be patient-centered, especially with the management, if there's only two or three minutes out of the 10 minutes allowed. So that means, therefore, trying to refine the history taking, doing a more focused examination to free up a bit of time later. Not coping with uncertainty, and I'm sure we all know exactly how often that with over-testing, et cetera, and not using time as a way forward. It's a wonderful thing to do. Just use time and see how things go in general practice. Then there are time management issues. The registrars that keep running late who have difficulty moving up from two to three to four consults an hour as they progress through their training. If you do have a registrar who is sort of really struggling and they're not writing their notes between consults and they've got all the notes to write up at the end of a very busy morning, that's another warning sign that they're having trouble with their time management. You've got to get in there. You've got to, because you've got to make a diagnosis. It's, it's very, it could be multifactorial. They may be trying to deal with too many things in one consult. They may have a poor structure. They may be having difficulty with coping with uncertainty. Any number of reasons why their time management might be poor. And I think you need to observe it to help them with this. And then there's one of my particular favorite criteria, which is shared decision-making. And it's very, very common that on the whole, what they've learned in hospital practice is to be quite doctor focused and quite dogmatic about the management. And that's fair enough with something serious. And absolutely, crushing chest pain, there's no point of doing shared decision making. 
But in general practice, quite often it's more nuanced. There is room for maneuver and it's a skill they need to learn. So this is the third of the big four. And this is the fourth, not checking understanding, not actually bothering to actually check how much. And it's so much more time efficient to get the patient to quickly reflect back what their understanding of the plan is, rather than you or the registrar repeating over and over again what the plan is. And finally, how to end a consult. Some of the registrars do struggle with actually ending a consult, which isn't naturally ending with all the normal social cues of handing over the script or whatever it is. And I learned how to end consults in those situations by sitting in with uh, two very, very experienced doctors. I sat in with lots and lots of established GPs when I was going through training. I deliberately did it. I sought them out and said, can I spend a morning with you? And one psychiatrist who used to manage these very needy and very distressed adolescents with eating disorders would just say after half an hour, we must stop for today. And it was a kindly done and they all accepted it. The implication being in two weeks, they'd be able to take it up again. And then I sat with a professor general practice, very renowned in the UK, who ended one consult I was sitting in on and he just said, oh, bugger off, I've had enough of you for today. And the patient loved it. And I thought, wow, well, I've never done that. And occasionally I've used it very, very selectively myself. And and as long as you pick the right patient, they don't mind if you're quite rude to them in that kind of way. Just quickly on shared decision making, the evidence in favor of shared decision making is now overwhelming and much less medical legal issues, much better compliance and adherence with chronic disease management less surgery and fewer investigations. And however, in order to learn shared decision-making, they've got some unlearning to do because in hospital, where it is a bit more directive and sometimes appropriately so, this is a bit like going to see a tennis coach and they change the grip on your racket and it's very uncomfortable unlearning how you've done it for many, many years. And let's be clear, if we're talking about shared decision-making, we're talking about situations of professional equipoise where if they saw five or six doctors, they get, might get four or five different managements. Some might manage that way. And what we're coming into is that the other two pillars, besides the evidence of evidence-based medicine, uh, the other two pillars being your clinical expertise and the third pillar being the patient's values and preferences. And this is much more subtle and nuanced in general practice, where you're incorporating all three facets of evidence-based medicine. And it's not an obvious emergency that really needs hospital admission by emergency transfer today. If you're talking about shared decision-making, you like to hear the fact that there are some options, there are some choices. The two experts in the room, this refers to Tuckett's work in which the doctor is the expert about disease, but the patient is the expert about the patient, about their sociocultural background, about their beliefs, about their previous experiences, their family experiences, and the rest of it. And in summary, I did some research on how you can teach shared decision-making. It's a complex skill. Don't be hard on the registrars for not doing this. This took most supervisors I interviewed about five to 10 years to crack shared decision-making. So what we should do is with our registrars, just highlight this skill and let them see you do it. 
uh, because they've got a lot of unlearning to do. And the other thing that's important is Lave Venga's community of the practice, the culture in the practice. If they see other established GPs not sharing decision-making, it's very difficult for them to learn. Whereas if everyone else they sit in with is also sharing decision-making, that's how you acquire this skill. And finally, we offer an apprenticeship model in general practice. And if our registrar was a, a painter, a painter as apprentice and got allocated to the school of Leonardo da Vinci to learn how to paint. And if in the year they were there, they had some tutorials and occasionally Leonardo would pop in and maybe help them just finish a painting here and there and give them a few tips. But at no point in the 12 months did they see Leonardo paint. We're missing a trick. We really are missing a trick. So what I'm sort of hoping is that you take out of that that you are so good. You're kind of Jahari's unknown known. It's a bit like driving a car. You're consulting in a way that is so far above most of our registrars. They need to see you do it to learn these higher level skills. One way in, in which you can just discuss how a case has gone is ask the registrar what went well, what didn't go so well, and then for you to join that discussion and to maybe add things if they haven't seen them for themselves. But at the end, always try and come up with two or three concrete suggestions. And having done many, many ECTVs, linking back to those performance criteria, it's amazing how often my concrete suggestions relate to ideas, concerns, and expectations, psychosocial context, shared decision-making, or just pointing them in that direction to try and encourage them to talk about options, and finally checking the patient's health understanding. It's amazing how often in my ECTV reports those come to the fore. And I personally think my last comments are that it's it's much better that the supervisors do this rather than the educators who sort of fly in to do an ECTV and fly out again and maybe do it again three months later. You're on the ground. The supervisors are there. They really can help a registrar progress gradually over six to 12 months to become patient-centered in their consulting style. So it's all about the relationship. They trust you and they're familiar with you and they respect you. And I think the supervisor has a key role in helping our registrars become more patient-centered. So I'm hoping that instead of slightly clunky dancing, that now as a result of this webinar, that all the GP supervisors who've attended are going to be dancing a tango in a really forthright way. So that's it. And thank you so much for listening. Andy, there was one question about whether we use SOAP in writing up notes, whether that's used for clinical notes. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that certainly emphasises the importance of the analysis. That's fine. I mean, I think most, most people don't use SOAP in general practice. They sort of just more history, examination, synthesis and management. But there's nothing wrong with SOAP. Andy, wonderful, wonderful material. Really, really interesting points have come through. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it as much as yeah, the no, audience. Okay, well, good job. Oh, thank you very much, Margot. I'm very privileged to have been invited. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you hadn't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. 
GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.